Tomorrow is Christmas Day, and so in preparation for that, we will be focusing on Proverbs 16, verse 12 today. And to give that background, we'll read from Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 15, and also have a reading from the Gospel according to Luke. So Proverbs 16, the verses 1 through 15. Reads as follows. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. So far, our reading from Proverbs. Now we turn to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary said, Mary said to the angel, 
how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And our text is Proverbs 16, verse 12. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe that everybody in life should have a fair go? To have a fair go means that everybody should get the same opportunities in life to get ahead. It's one of those fundamental ideas in Australian society that everybody deserves a fair go. And we would expect that If you do that, if you give people the right opportunities, then at some point they will get ahead. Well, if there's one group of people that you would have expected to see getting ahead, it would have been God's people in the past. He gave them the ultimate fair go. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and he gave them The promised land, a land of milk and honey, a place where everything was set up for them, ready to take over. And they threw it all away. And as a result, they lost their nation and their independence. So by the time that the angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary, there's not much left of the royal family. Joseph is of the line of David, so he's of royalty, but he's a carpenter. A carpenter living under Roman occupation, a man with no money, no status, no education, no social clout, nothing. And so his situation contrasts very sharply with what Gabriel tells Mary in our text. Gabriel says Mary will give birth to a son, and he says that son will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, the only way any of that will ever work is if it's a work of God from beginning to end. And the gospel is that God did do that work. And the implications are that Christ does reign and that There will be no end to his kingdom. Why not? Because his throne is established on righteousness. 
That is why Christ's throne is permanent, is because it's established on righteousness. And that makes his reign different from that of every other ruler. That means that his reign will never end. Not even because of our failure, he will reign forever. And that's what makes the gospel so good. It will never be taken away from us. Because ultimately, it is established on the righteousness of God himself. And so this morning, I might preach that gospel to you. The gospel that the Lord establishes his throne by righteousness, regardless of our failure, and because of his faithfulness. So when we consider the story of Christmas, what sorts of emotions come to mind? Well, for most people that have some sort of a Christian background, they would associate the season with hope. But if you go back far enough, it's not hope. It's failure. Failure is not the first thing we would associate with Christmas, but there it is. And not just any kind of failure, not just the failure of a missed opportunity or something like that. No, this failure runs much deeper. This is a systemic failure at the very core of our existence. Now, our text from Proverbs 16, verse 12, helps us to make that connection. It says it is an abomination for kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. So that last half is stated as a principle. It has a kind of a universal sound to it. This is true at all times. The throne is established by righteousness. In other words, for a throne to last, for a throne to be established, it must be founded on righteousness. So what is righteousness? Well, in essence, it's simply living according to God's laws. That's righteousness. Living according to his rules. And God is the only one who, who has the right to make those laws because he created us. And he did not create us first and then impose those rules on us like some sort of a dictator. No, human beings were originally created with the ability to be righteous. In fact, they were created to be God's deputies. So if you think about it, it's a very high position. It's, it's the highest position that anyone could have. And that's reflected in Psalm 8 as well. It says, you have made him, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And it also says in that Psalm, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You can even translate that to say, you have made him a little lower than God. So we human beings created to be God's deputies, created to reflect God's righteousness here on earth. And again, God's law is not just an arbitrary set of rules that he imposes on others. No, it's much more than that. It is an outward expression of who God is. He's totally consistent. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, he's described as a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just, just and upright is he. And in Isaiah 45, verse 21, it says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So there is an unbending consistency to his character, and that consistency underlies everything that he does. And that consistency is reflected in verses 4 and 5 of our reading from Proverbs as well. 
Look at this. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Unbelievers might look at that and they might mislabel that as karma. Or they might give it another name. But Scripture says, no, no, no. No, there is a moral consistency to how the world works. And that moral consistency is based in the character of God. It is a reflection of His righteousness. God created the whole world to reflect that righteousness. Psalm 97 verse 1 and 2 says that the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. And because they are the foundation of his throne, of his rule, of his law-giving, it is reflected in the way that he runs the world. And that is why our text says this throne is established by righteousness. It is encapsulating a very important principle there that underlies all created things. The throne is established by righteousness. That's how it should be. That is not just an ideal. That is how the world was designed to run. The throne is established by righteousness. And that means that a king who lives and who rules according to God's law can expect to receive God's blessing. And that doesn't just apply to kings, by the way. That applies to us all. We all have different positions of authority and responsibility in life. And if we love righteousness, if we live according to that, God will bless that. We can expect a certain stability in life. God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and he put them in the promised land. And he did this so that they would be an example of righteousness to the nations around them. In Leviticus 20 verse 26, for example, he says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Life in the promised land was meant to represent on a very small Scale, what human life could be like when it was based on God's righteousness. Israel was meant to be a, a, a microcosm of God's righteous rule surrounded by a sea of heathendom. And that's why our text says that the king's throne is established by righteousness. And you know what? The kings of Israel who sat on that throne didn't rule by righteousness at all. They failed. And it wasn't just failure by one or two people. It was a systemic failure over generations from day one. Consider Saul, the first king, who murdered an entire family of priests. David, who committed adultery and betrayed one of his own men. Solomon became a playboy and an idolater. Rehoboam, his immature young son who split the kingdom by his foolishness. And those were the best. Those were the best. It got much worse after that. Jeroboam, Basha, Zimri, Omri, Ahab. Without, with a few exceptions, it just kept on getting worse. The throne is established by righteousness. And there was none. And in Isaiah 1, towards the end of the Reign of the Jewish kings, the Lord says to his people, your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. 
Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is what righteousness looks like. Do these things, he says. And he goes on to say, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is a house of Israel, and the men of Judah are as pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so, in his righteousness, the Lord finally removed his people from the promised land. And even when some of them returned later on, it was never the same again. So if there's anything that this history is meant to teach us, it is that God's people, then and now, are simply not able to maintain this righteousness on their own. It will always lead to failure and condemnation when they try. They had a fair go. They had the fairest goal that anybody could ever have. The fairest goal that anybody has ever had. And they conclusively proved that righteousness cannot come from within. So, righteousness cannot come from within. Well, can it be imposed from the outside? Well, we read from the gospel according to Luke this morning. During the time that Luke wrote this gospel, Israel was under Roman rule. And you know, Roman, Roman society was the most advanced at that point in time that any society has ever been. A lot of the ideas in Greco-Roman culture still come back in our own ideas about what constitutes justice, how a country should be run, that sort of thing. And so the Romans had their own ideas on how a throne should be established. They said, how do you establish a throne? Well, that's simple. You do it by brute force. And there are benefits to that, actually. For instance, because of their strict control, the Romans built a system of roads that went all over the empire. If you go to Italy, you can still see some of these roads today. They maintained peace. They had a stable government. They had predictable laws. But against that, they ruled with an iron fist. The people whom they conquered were often exploited. There was a man called Cicero who wrote a few decades before the birth of Christ. Here's what he said about Roman rule. He, he says, How bitterly and how justly the empire of the Romans is detested in all the lands. The provinces make lamentation, free peoples complain, and kings are indignant. Another writer called Tacitus wrote a few decades later that the Romans call it empire. But it is, in fact, murder and rapine and profit. They make a desolation and they call it peace. So the throne cannot be established by external means either because that also violates the righteousness of God. Just does it in different ways. And really, everybody has their own ideas as to what an ideal society should look like. How often don't politicians use messianic language for their own programs? But our text refused to be put into, it refuses to be put into that sort of a political box. It doesn't, it refuses to be put on the left side of the political spectrum or on the right side. It mocks all of our efforts at categorization. It tells us, look, God's throne is established in one way and in one way only, and that is by righteousness. And because no one else can do that, 
God will do it himself. The Old Testament presents a stunning account of human failure. It comes to a crescendo when the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied some seven centuries before the birth of Christ, and he makes it clear that Israel cannot and never will establish its throne in righteousness. Israel cannot and never will be the servant that the Lord wants. So the Lord will bring forth a servant king from Israel who is going to be everything that Israel as a nation and its kings never were. And we can read about that in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to turn there. You can turn there with me if you wish. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read that to you because this lays it out really, really clearly. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Two-thirds of the way through the book, and it becomes really clear the Lord is going to have to do this himself. And so Isaiah prophesies about this in Isaiah 42. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, God's soul that is. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God is going to do a new thing. See, the Lord is absolutely intent on establishing his throne by righteousness, and he is going to do it regardless of our failure. And so do you understand now why this message of Gabriel was such good news? He could call it the gospel according to Gabriel. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Lord establishes his throne by righteousness, and he does that regardless of our failure. But what motivates him to do so? Well, his faithfulness does, and that's our second point. God had already promised to King David that he would establish his throne. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now stop and think for a moment that God made that promise even though he knew that David himself would commit adultery, which is described for us only four chapters later. David's descendants would be even worse. God knows all things. 
The past and the future are equally open before him, and yet he makes this promise. Think about that. Why is God so committed? Why use the same family line when he knows ahead of time this is going to go nowhere? Why not start over? Because he wants to fulfill his promises. God is faithful to his promises. And he didn't only make his promises to David. He made his promises to our very first parents when they abdicated the throne. They were disobedient to God. They violated his righteousness. They handed their throne over to Satan. And ever since then, we've been doing the same thing, abdicating responsibility, fleeing the throne whenever we can. Satan is a prince of this world. But God promised to crush him. In Genesis 3, verse 15, he already says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Interesting, hey? You would have expected something like, well, his, his offspring or her offspring shall bruise your head. But he already uses the word, the, the pronoun he. He says, he shall bruise your head. That, that is a prediction of the king who is to come. And you shall bruise his heel. So God made a promise to redeem sinners. And even when the microcosm of redemption in the promised land failed, he intended to keep his promise. Even when the people themselves were exiled and could not oversee any of this anymore, God oversaw all of it. God's righteousness is that he lives up to his own decree. Remember, he follows his own rules. That's what righteousness is. And he had decreed that he would use the Davidic dynasty to bring about the Messiah. In fact, he goes back even further than that when he uses the phrase house of Jacob. Interesting, house of Jacob, not house of Israel. So Jacob reminds us of, of the man himself, the, the patriarch, and all of his shortcomings. I remember the word Jacob means heel grabber. So it's a, a, a look back at the dysfunctional roots. Jacob the heel grabber, the family patriarch who thought that he could wrangle God's blessing instead of relying on God's faithfulness. God is faithful to his promises despite human sin. He was fully determined to bring about his righteousness himself. In Isaiah 46, he says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation I will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel is my glory. He is going to bring his righteousness into the world no matter what it takes. But then how to deal with all that unrighteousness? Because it's not enough to simply put a righteous king on the throne and give him an unrighteous people. You need to deal with that unrighteousness. The king somehow needs to compensate for the unrighteousness of his people. For the throne to be truly established, all human failure needs to be atoned for the, the failure of his people. And that is why ultimately righteousness cannot be just a moral principle. And here's where we part ways with all others who have thought about this question in the past. 
because many secular people also believe strongly in righteousness, but to them it simply is an abiding moral principle. Scripture does not let you do that. No. When you look at it from this perspective, the righteousness must be embodied in a person, and that person is Jesus. He demonstrated God's righteousness in punishing sin and keeping in having sin punished in him and then in keeping God's promises. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's saying this is a righteousness that did not come about by our law-keeping. No, he says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. See, God's justice had to be satisfied in the life and in the death of Jesus Christ. Only then could He be truly righteous and forgive sins. But when he does that, when he forgives sins, when he continues to work with his people, when he keeps his promises in our lives, that is his righteousness as well. That is his faithfulness. See, sinners like us can only ever ask for deliverance on the basis of God's righteousness because we have none of our own. When he works through sin, when he redeems it from the inside out, when he gives us forgiveness through Christ, then we have true forgiveness. And then God shows us his righteousness. In Psalm 51, verse 14, David writes, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He's saying, look, you can experience this. You can even sing about it. But that also means that there is no possibility of humans ever taking credit anymore. The Lord establishes His throne by righteousness. He established it through Jesus Christ, and because He is righteous, His throne will endure forever. He will be great. That sets Him apart from John the Baptist. Hey, John the Baptist was great before the Lord. Jesus will be great, full stop. Great by whatever standard you measure Him by. No matter what standard you measure Christ by, He will always exceed it. He is greater than anything that we could imagine, even if that standard is the righteousness of God himself. He fulfills it. The prophet Micah prophesied that Jesus would stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord as God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The Lord establishes His throne by righteousness. But then woe to us if we ignore that righteousness. Precisely because a throne has been established by righteousness, it must be an abomination to us to do evil because that was the other half of that proverb, remember? And that's a challenge to us. Is it really an abomination to us to do evil. The very thought of doing wrong is that an abomination to us. God hates sin. 
Sin is an abomination to him. Boys and girls, do you know what an abomination is? It is something that you detest. You know, maybe you've had it before that you bit into something and it was really disgusting. An apple maybe with, with rot on the inside and, and you get this disgusting feeling and you spit it out, you detest it. That's, that thing that you ate is abominable to you. Well, sin is an abomination to God. He hates it. The word abomination means that he detests it deeply. Proverbs 11 verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 12 verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 15 verse 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 16 verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 28 verse 9, if one turns away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And God punishes unrepentant sin. In Ezekiel 7 verse 3, he tells his people, Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. All these things that are an abomination to God, are they an abomination to you as well? Maybe not. And then you need to pray together with King David. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And he goes on to say again, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. The only way you can ever have that righteousness is through faith in Christ. There is no other way. Through his blood, through his righteousness. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Belzer Confession puts it so well in Article 22. It says, Faith is the instrument by which we embrace Christ our righteousness, he imputes, that means credits, to us all his merits and as many holy works as he has done for us and in our place. Therefore, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him, with him in communion of all his benefits. Christ was made an abomination for us. He was made an abomination for us. And when we receive forgiveness through his blood, then we are secure. And then that security will express itself in fleeing from sin so that all sin is an abomination to us as well and we do not cherish it. That's what it means to pray, your kingdom come. We just talked about that in the Lord's Prayer a few weeks ago. Your kingdom come, that means so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. It's saying the same thing. The Lord establishes His throne by righteousness. There is no other throne. There is no other God. In Isaiah 45, He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. There is no other righteousness available. None other will avail. 
None other will save, none other will protect, especially not on the day of judgment, because this is the last day of Advent, that time of waiting when we remember the time that the church waited for the first coming of Christ, and He came, and just as surely as He came the first time, He will come again. He promised, and He keeps His promises. As it says in Psalm 98, the Lord has made known His salvation. That's what He's done. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. That's what this is about. And He goes on to say, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Lord is faithful to His promises, and so His throne will be established forever. Regardless of all of our failure, because of his faithfulness and his reign will never end. Amen.